Welcome back to episode 33 of the Service Design Podcast. This episode, we're speaking to another winner of the Service Design Awards, the best in private sector. We're speaking with Amjid Razul from Tesco Bank and Paul Jervis Heath from Modern Human, who helped redesign the bank's customer complaint experience. If you want to find out about their pop-up design studio, keep listening. So we're speaking to Paul Jervis Heath and uh, Amjit Rasul. Paul is principal at Modern Human and Amjit is head of service design at Tesco Bank. And we're going to talk about the project where they won the service design award, best in private sector, Project Phoenix, service design for Tesco Bank. Good afternoon, guys. Thanks for joining us. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So maybe um, apart from my very brief introduction, could you both uh, introduce yourselves and then uh, our listeners also know which voice goes with which name. Maybe Paul, could you start? Yeah, I'm Paul Jervis Heath. As you said, I'm a principal at a design studio called uh, Modern Human. We're a design studio and an innovation practice. We do um, product and service design for all types of clients, actually. You know, we work with startups who come to us with their nascent ideas and we help turn them into to new products and services and launch them. Um, or we work with, uh, and we work right through to big businesses with love, like um, Tesco Bank, where we help them innovate, create new services, improve the services that they've got, launch new products, all of those kind of things. So that's what we do at Modern Human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm Amjit, um, Amjit Rasul, and I am head of service design at Tesco Bank. So basically, um, service design forms part of a bigger design practice at Tesco Bank. Um, Our roots originated in digital um, and slowly over time, as design deepens in the organization, we are extending human-centered design to solve broader range of problems. As a bank, we are wholly owned by Tesco and our mission is to be the bank for Tesco shoppers and a large part of Tesco's ethos is providing the very best customer experience to its shoppers. Mm-hmm. Great. And I think that's also something you uh, took into account in the project that you uh, won the award for. Could you also introduce uh, the project that you uh, worked on together to our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. I'll start off. So there's quite an interesting backstory to this one. So before we started this project, as I mentioned earlier, as a design practice, we had been working on you know, strategic projects, but in the main, it was in digital. Yeah? So it was very much our role as a design practice was to craft and create um, digital experiences. Now, having had success in that domain, certainly a lot of our stakeholders and exec and were interested in could we apply some of that thinking and that approach, you know, um, to broader business problems? And so, you know, there was a desire to look at the experience we give customers um, when they make a complaint. And I think our exec team and indeed our stakeholders were very interested to say, how do we actually focus on people first and foremost? And that's how that project came about. Um, So for us as a design practice, it was really exciting because it was one of our first non-digital experience projects. So that was important for us. But fundamentally, it was about recognizing that a complaint is um, human interaction that is quite complicated. And, you know, it's not as simple as thinking that a technology solution in itself will solve that problem. Um, and so that, that's how that project came about. Mm-hmm. Maybe one uh, general question about the bank before we go more into the project. Mm-hmm. Is Tesco Bank an, uh, a young bank or is it an old bank? So we're relatively young. So mm-hmm. compared to, you know, traditional banks that have maybe yeah. been in existence for hundreds of years, we are very, very young, you know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we started out as a joint venture with the Royal Bank of Scotland um, and then mm-hmm. the bank became wholly owned by Tesco. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. And do you think that makes a, a difference in how you deal with the digital age as a bank compared to the more traditional older banks? It's a really interesting question. I, I think that in itself doesn't make us you know, any better. I think really what makes a difference is our recognition and increasing um, importance that we place on human-centered design. That's the key for us. Because, and as we'll get into, you know, during this conversation, you know, a lot of the times we are dealing with, you know, human problems and the challenge is sometimes to think that we can invent or apply, you know, technology to that problem to solve it. Whereas technology often is just an enabler and unless we really know what those genuine problems are and actually what is important you know, both to customers and to colleagues in our bank, that that's a success factor for us. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Paul, from your point of view as an agency, could you introduce the project? Yeah, um, it was really nice to be invited to kind of partner with um, Amjad and his team to take this kind of first step into to service design and, and beyond digital design because it's quite core to what we do. And so... The way we kind of went about it is we really wanted to get bank colleagues from across the bank involved in the project. So we set the design, we set up a pop-up design studio in Glasgow, which is the um, the call center. So it's relatively unusual to set up a, a design studio in a call center, but it's a great place to be if you want to be close to customers, because customers are calling in all the time, every day to talk to people about their products and, and services and you know and solve problems and, and complain and all of the things that customers do. And so we set up this pop-up design studio. We got a variety of people from the contact center there. Uh, we got the head of complaints. We got somebody who handles actually handles um, complaints and we got somebody who answers the phone front line. And we brought them into the team along with some of Amjid's team and some of my team to work with us on the project. And I think that brought a very different sense to the project team. They had a very real view of what customers are actually calling in about. They also had the way, you know, they knew very, very intimately the different ways that they had to deal with certain complaints. And as you can imagine, banking, there's regulation and all of those kind of things. So certain conversations have to go down certain routes. But what it allowed us to do is it allowed us to step back. It allowed us to listen to a whole heap of customer complaints calls. I think we listened to about 400 calls. We identified the root cause of each of those calls. We also traced through all of the bank's processes around complaints and created a current state service blueprint that mapped how things moved from the customer experience at the front to the back office systems behind the scenes. And then what we did is we went out and interviewed customers who had complained to really understand what had driven their complaint, how they felt about their complaint, the emotions at the time and all of those kind of things. So really interesting to get this 360 degree view of a complaint from both the people on the phone handling that call when a customer is you know, upset and calling in to challenge something or complain about something. And then the other side to listen to the customer and what was on their mind and, and what they think about and how they'd prepared themselves to make that call and how they'd kind of arm themselves with the information and all of that kind of thing that we all do before we complain. You know, none of us are cut out naturally for complaining. You know, everyone kind of gears themselves up a little bit to it and so you know understanding the psychological processes on both sides of that call was really interesting because what you quickly understand is that both parties on a you know when you're handling a complaint are um, under a, a certain degree of stress if you're the person who's doing the complaining you're under stress and, and you're thinking about how to get your point across and you're um, maybe angry about what's happened or upset about what's happened or concerned about what's happened. On the other side, you know, from a call handler's point of view, my colleague's um, point of view here at the bank, you know, you've got an upset person who's on the phone and you're trying to work out how you please that customer. You're trying to work out how you fix their problem. You're trying to work out 
what are the important things in what they're telling you as well? Because customers quite often don't know the perfect way to, to describe their complaint to get it across to someone. And so that complex interplay is a very human moment to start and unpick and really understand the factors. And so that let us get a really interesting perspective on actually what does drive complaints? What are people looking for when they do complain? How do complaints look from a a customer's point of view? How could those complaints be categorized from a customer's point of view and from a bank's point of view as well? And, you know, those assessing all of those different elements as we look at both perspectives was a really interesting project. Mm -hmm. Did that mean that you also really dived into the psychology of stress and looked at what evokes stress, how you can handle uh, those kind of things? Because I can imagine that's something which is very, very important in these kind of uh, complex situations. Absolutely. If you think about what's happening in your brain when you're in a stressful situation, your brain's releasing cortisol, which is a stress hormone. And what cortisol does is it limits your holistic thinking. You start to think in very straight lines. And so if you're the customer, you've built yourself up to making this complaint. You take a deep breath, dial the number, and launch into and talking to the person who answers the phone. And of course, you know, you're experiencing an increased level of cortisol. When you answer the call as a call handler, very similar situation. You know you could be talking to a customer who's very upset. Um, and so your stress levels are high, your adrenaline levels and cortisol levels are very high too. And so the actual think, the thinking ability of both parties is impaired in that moment. And so how do you and what can you do to facilitate that conversation, knowing that both parties are um, you know, suffering from increased cortisol levels um, and and trying to solve a problem and and they're having a very kind of human moment um, in that. And I think Mm -hmm. just to build to that, I think there's an important point, um, which is it it wasn't just about stress for customers. It was equally important to us was how do we enable our colleagues who are providing that experience to customers? Um, how do we enable them to, you know, um, really deal with, you know, customers in the best possible way? And so through this project and the different research we did, we uncovered loads of things that contribute, you know, in their own way to what inhibits, you know, ultimately a great customer experience. And, and I think there's an important point here, you know, which we've kind of started to cover, which was, you know, for us, this project um, and, and certainly, you know, the work we did, it was, it went beyond just what we did. It was also about how, you know, because as Paul mentioned at the start of the call, when we set this piece of work up, we purposefully brought together, um, you know, a cross-discipline team together. Now, while, you know, if you work in lots of organisations, you've heard it before, cross-discipline team, agile, whatever. But for us, it was about bringing people into, you know, the design a process. And actually, everyone in that team was following human-centred design led and facilitated by, you know, the design practice. So we had people, you know, you know, who are dealing with complaints day in, day out, you know, people who head that up. And through that process, we started to get a really deep understanding of, from a colleague point of view, what's important from their perspective to enable them to serve customers better. And that's important because Mm -hmm. often we sometimes think of customer experience and we only think of the customer. And while that's really important, we have to recognise that actually you know, it's all customer experience. It's just that some parts of that experience are played through, you know, a colleague who's delivering that experience. I think I think that's really key. I think the there's two parts in there that are important. I think, first of all, when we're talking about neuropsychology, when we're talking about um, uh, cognitive load, when we're talking about um, uh, the... the cortisol and adrenaline it's very easy to sound clever but make it sound very academic and when you've got when you're working with the people 
um, who are actually on the phones, what you're essentially doing is you're explaining some of their reactions and the reactions they see in some of their colleagues. You're explaining to them why actually they do find it hard to take a complaint call. And, and bearing in mind that complaints um, at Tesco Banker, you know, a colleague will deal with a complaint maybe once a month or twice a month. So it's not something you're dealing with all the time. And so as soon as you realize it is a complaint, you know, your, your um, stress levels um, increase as a result of that. And colleagues who answer calls could describe that to us, but they hadn't realized it was normal. They hadn't realized that actually that is a normal response for any human being in that in that situation. And so it gives them a way to talk to each other about how they handle complaints. And it gave um, the it gave uh, managers and, and people around the call center. We use the term cognitive load to describe the effort that people are having to make to handle calls, because obviously when you're taking a call, it's not like chatting to a friend. It's not like us talking now where we're free to, to kind of think of what we're saying and stuff like that. You've got to, um, yes, you're, you, you're, you're in a headset, you're talking to someone who's upset. So that's the first kind of um, tricky situation. But then you're actually, you've got systems in front of you where you have to record certain things about the call. You have to look up certain details about the customer. And so it's the equivalent of driving down the motorway at 80 mile an hour, um, having an argument with your um, you know, other half in the passenger seat um, whilst trying to read a billboard you know, going past. You, you are under an awful lot of pressure in that moment. And being able to point that out and actually say, you know what, this is a very skilled um, job that people are doing. It might, not, it might not seem like it. It might seem when you listen to be just conversation Actually, it's a very skilled um, thing that people are doing, and it needs to be treated as such. You know, you can't treat handling complaints as an innate skill. It's not something that people are either good at or not good at. You have to work out how you teach it, how you coach it, how they get better at doing it, um, and, and how you develop that skill. Um, and being able to give people language around describing that was really good and seeing that language then being used to describe complaints and the moment of complaint and all of those kind of things uh, was really fulfilling from my point of view to, to, to kind of see a different um, mindset start to establish itself around um, complaints and, and a new nomenclature kind of getting um, established. Yeah, I think it could be super interesting to bring those people together and I think that's also what... Uh, a lot of service designers probably already are doing uh, together with other companies. Like they organize workshops where they have all those people in the same room and they all of a sudden realize, oh no, I never knew that from uh, your side and uh, vice versa. But then uh, what I'm wondering is how you took the next step. Like you said, you set up a design uh, studio, a pop-up uh, studio in Glasgow. How did you um, bring uh, together the, the right people? How did you decide which responsibility, which profile would have how did you collaborate over time did you uh, keep on um, organizing workshops or also uh, online co collaboration that some people get more of a designer role other more of a feedback role how did that uh, system of your pop-up design studio look like I, I think that's a really interesting point because workshops aren't enough mm -hmm. um, they're a good start but but workshops aren't enough and 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 I think what we needed to do with uh, with with this project is we needed to we needed to observe people first of all rather than them coming to a workshop and telling us how they felt um, we needed them to also tell us how they felt but the point about the pop-up design studio is that it wasn't just a workshop is just a snapshot in time and you find out about you know whatever the subject of that workshop is and if it's well facilitated you can obviously get lots of rich information from it but actually i think the magic with this project is in the pop-up design studio we had people on the project full time um you know five days a week coming together to solve the problems to understand the problems first of all to immerse themselves in um the, the, the world of complaints to use that immersion to, to inspire, to inspire them to, to then imagine how complaints could be different. Um, and so I think it, it has to go deeper than workshops. Workshops are important and they have their place, but I don't think they're sufficient to get really under the skin of 
difficult problems like this one. What do you yeah. think, Andrew? Yeah, so so I would just build on that. So I think I think from my perspective, there's a bit before. Um, so when we set this piece of work up, we you know deliberately set up as what we call a design runway. So what we what we wanted to get away from, and we've experienced it, you know, a lot of organisations, you know, I have certainly, is that pieces of work are set up, you know, it's kind of like, right, we're going to deliver something and you've got, an, you know, an army of people ready, whether it's cutting code or whatever you're doing. And suddenly at some moment, there is a kind of, a point where people say, what is it we're actually doing, <laughs> you know? And so... You know, the first important thing we did was we set this piece of work up as a design runway, which is very much a phase where we are doing strategic design. And at its simplest level, we're getting really clear and aligned on what are the genuine problems we want to solve and get alignment on the direction that we want to follow. Okay. And and, and, and we can cover that later. I think to Paul's point, the magic the magic for this project was it was about bringing together this team who were working on the problem. And so to a certain extent, everyone lost their day job title and they were just part of the redesign team. And and that was quite scary, you know, from a designer's point of view, for us, you know, as a design practice, there was a wee bit about, you know, as we were maturing, we had to recognize that actually we're relinquishing a bit of control, you know, of design. You know, we can get a bit precious, but actually what we're doing is we're bringing people into the process to collaboratively and collectively um, solve a problem. And so it wasn't really, while we certainly had workshops with wider colleagues, the magic was, you know, for 12 weeks or 14 weeks, we had this group of people in the studio, you know, sharing a space, working through a problem together. And it's amazing how you uncover people's hidden skills. So the best, um, one of the best elevator pitches for um, what we found on the project came from from Vari, who uh, was um, the frontline colleague on this project. On another project, we found uh, one of the people who was working on the project, we found had a fine art degree um, and, and worked in the contact center um, uh, over in, in Glasgow for Tesco Bank. So you uncover um, people's hidden skills and you allow them to use those skills in a design process and you, you kind of take those skills and, and you use them and, and point them at a, a problem. Uh, and that's quite different to working in a, in a day job where you're kind of given a, a role and told to fulfill a, a yeah. single role. So I think that's been quite popular about the process, hasn't and it? So, and I think also it, it helps you. It certainly helped us short, shortcut a lot of things, you know. So, you know, we had people who had been dealing with complaints, you know, for months or years. And so, you know, things that we might assume we could quickly just validate with these people really quickly, you know, and so it led to much more richer kind of directions that we pursued. Yeah. I was wondering, uh, Amjit, um, setting up this this pop-up, um, how was that perceived uh, by the staff in, in, in the bank or in the call center? Was there any friction in the beginning? Did people feel a bit awkward or did it really go very smoothly? How, how was it at the start? I mean, from our perspective, it was really smooth. I, th I think, you know, we took over a space, um, you know, in our customer service center and very much, you know, it was we actually, our pop-up was on the floor where, you know, the complaints team sat. And so it kind of broke this barrier, which was there's a group of people who are going to kind of, you know, sit in a dark room and, um, you know, then come up with a solution and impose it. And so I think actually being very close to where the action was happening was important. I think probably what was also really important was by virtue of colleagues seeing their peers as part of that team, you know, just kind of reassured everyone. So it didn't feel like, Hey, these group of designers or this external parties coming in, you know, they saw people like Nicola, who was the head of complaints, um, you know, in that team with us. And so it kind of just 
kind of lowered the stakes and there was a bit of it helped us you know kind of create that trust straight away um you know with the team and i i I think that's an important point you know which is probably what your question is really getting to is you know how do you you know avoid you know these projects or the that this kind of activity being seen as a threat and instead it's very much about hey we are here to you know, take advantage of some opportunities and genuinely make things better for customers and complaint uh, and colleagues. And, and, you know, throughout the process, we involved wider colleagues, you know, because, you know, what was important for us was to absolutely recognise that, you know, the colleagues will play, will, will absolutely have to play a really key role in designing the service, you know, and have ownership in that as well. Yeah, this this pop up protocol is something that we that we use quite a lot at, at Modern Human, and and I think um, there is a the, as Andrew rightly identifies, there is a there is a danger that people um, see people coming in and, and assume it's a threat. I think um, in in location having it on the complaints floor where complaints colleagues were actually kind of sitting, they could see it, you know, they could see it happening. They could see what we were working on. The room had glass walls so they could see in so they didn't feel like what was happening was a secret. They could see their colleagues being part of it. But even with that, there is a point, you know, about four or five weeks in where people are going, okay, great. They're all sat in that room. Now what are they working on? So that's where you really have to, to, to engage and have a, a, a kind of communications plan within um, the host organization to then say, okay, this is what we're working on and this is the process that we're using and this is how we're taking your views into account and this is something that's being done with you, not to you. Um, and that carried on throughout. So um, Tesco Bank has uh, contact centers in um, in Newcastle and, and Glasgow, and we were very careful to make sure that regularly we would uh, make sure that we checked in at both sites to share what we were doing, to share what was coming out, to share what we were seeing, so that people could go, yeah, I recognize that. Or actually, you know when that happens, that happens because of this, and they could throw their own um, thoughts and ideas and things into the mix. So it felt very collaborative and something that happened with people who handle complaints, not to people who handle complaints. And that's true of any pop-up design studio. There's a danger when you create um, a design studio that it's separate um, or it's, it exists within a bubble within the host organization. And that's where you risk the, the, the danger of an organization uh, developing a Teflon coating where whatever um, innovations that you actually come up with or changes that you come up with just slide straight off. And I think the, 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 the process that we use in setting up those pop-up studios tries to make sure that that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's uh, something that indeed happens quite often. But of course, it's uh, important what happens after the um, pop-up studio because what you said was was about 14 weeks that the studio was there. But what happened afterwards? So during the studio, you uh, analyzed um, the the pain points, stuff that could could be improved. You came up with new concepts that could be developed. And uh, what did you do after the studio? And was it already um, like set before uh, those 14 weeks, how the next steps would be taken? Was it already strategically uh, like planned or at least uh, you knew that uh, you had the budget and the time to continue working on it or how did that go? Yeah, no, no, super question. So I think one of the reasons, so if I go back and then I'll answer your question, one of the reasons we um, embarked on this project was before we st- before we started this, there was a prevailing view, um, you know, uh, you know, amongst you know, um, the organisation that perhaps a new IT system or a new complaint system would solve the problem. Yeah, and it just so happened that our the complaint system that we had was, you know, due to you know come out of service, you know, and so. For us, that was an important point, you know, and for our stakeholders where, you know, there was this feeling that we know complaints is really important, you know, both from a customer and a colleague point of view, but is it really as simple as replacing a complaint system, you know? And so that's what led um, us to do this project. There was always commitment that we would do something at the start of the project. The commitment was we are going to, you know, 
um, invest in a new complaint system. And I think to testament of our sponsors and stakeholders, what they recognised is by following the design process, certainly at the start, we weren't sure of exactly what we'd uncover and exactly what direction, you know, um, you know, we would pursue. All we could be confident of is by following this process. Um, at the end, we will design a future state that is completely outside in, designed, you know, with a firm focus on people. Um, and, and so, you know, that was important context. I think to answer your question, there was commitment, you know, both from an investment perspective and a priority perspective, you know, to do something, you know, for complaints. And so very practically, um, as we transitioned from the runway into the delivery, the key thing here was throughout the runway, we had weekly check-ins with our key stakeholder group. And that was really important because we took them on the journey and also they were regularly, you know, giving us their views and their perspectives. So collectively, everyone had ownership in the direction and the solution we were taking. Um, And so, you know, by the time we got to the end of the runway, and this for me is probably a really crucial point, of the team that were working on the redesign, the spine of that team then formed the delivery team. So they carried on that vision and they then went and, and we established a delivery program to deliver that future vision. So the product owner who was in, you know, during our design runway was the product owner that continued to deliver that future vision, you know. So, you know, there's always we have, you know, as you can imagine, there's practical considerations like um, investment and, you know, prioritization. That was all always in plan. So really for us, it was about me being really confident of the vision we want to pursue and then how do we set up the next stage of the project, the delivery, you know, to, to actualize that vision. And, and the thing for me that made the difference was almost half of the team that were part of the initial redesign then carried on to the redesign phase for delivery. Yeah, that that relates to a question I was about to ask. Indeed, like uh, after the pop up is done, uh, do people go back to their regular day jobs? I mean, they are changed individuals after an experience like that. I'm sure. And how how practically yeah do you go about making sure that they yeah they have a different point of view, a different way of wanting to work, that they can actually do this. Yeah. So certainly from a, from from the complaints project's point of view, some of the key colleagues that were part of that then um, formed the kind of team, the core of the team that delivered it. So they didn't they didn't go back to to their day job in the sense of exactly what it was like before it. Their day job and then became how do we deliver this future complaints experience. I think and the bank, uh, the bank created the the space for them to do this. Was that anticipated, or was that something unexpected? No, so it was. I mean, certainly the delivery of a future complaints experience was anticipated. So you know that, that was always in plan. I think what was unexpected was the the impact that the the design. You know, just following design had on, you know, colleagues. And so certainly for a lot of people, to your point, it really changed the way they started to approach, you know, everyday tasks, you know. Um, you know, it, it changed the ways that they looked at, you know, from a customer point of view, try to understand customers, but also how they approach problem solving. And, you know, they, we, we've had that feedback where actually it's, to a certain extent, it, those are the things that are more important is the impact we have on people's lives and actually how we are helping them, you know, um, you know, almost collectively improve, you know, the bank and Tesco as well um, and, and do that. Yeah, it brings me to another thing I have been thinking about recently. Um, it is, of course, a challenge on how people's job will change um, in the future and some of the more repetitive jobs will be taken over um, by computers, uh, etc. So 
that means that people will uh, have to work in a more creative and collaborative way. So I'm sure that's also something which is important for the bank that uh, their employees are uh, are trained in different ways, uh, different ways of thinking, so they can apply it in your job, like what you say, more um, of a problem-solving uh, way of working. Is that something which was um, which was important from the beginning, or was it like a side effect, or is there something else happening in the bank around this uh, evolution? Yeah, so I think um, I'll start off with that one. I, I think it's only there, there wasn't a grand plan for us when we started this project. And actually, one of the biggest learnings for us that we carried on is when we bring people together, the mission isn't to make people designers overnight. And we got really strong feedback from our colleagues about that. And we've changed that on subsequent projects. Um, so, you know, um, it's just about exposing people to a different way of working. I think to your point, and it's an important one, is, you know, for Tesco for Tesco Bank and Tesco, you know, um, it's really important that we leverage um, the capabilities that digital offers, you know. Um, that said, we absolutely recognise that there will be moments in that customer experience where it is important or imperative for customers to speak to us, you know. And so, you know, the role of our colleagues working in, you know, the customer service centre is changing where they're dealing with more, you know, complex, you know, more unique kind of cases. And so what this project showed is just a broadly, not design, you know, but just broadly the types of skills that people need to evolve with. I think the other thing, you know, which your question touches upon is even if I look at from a design point of view our roles are changing you know and our role certainly from test in a Tesco perspective is we're moving away from being the hands-on craft makers to more it's about facilitation you know because as we grow design and deepen design the role of our design practice you know then starts to morph into how do we facilitate, you know, design, you know, in this organisation and how do we take people without, you know, uh, you know, who are not necessarily have the badge of a designer but have all the right problem-solving capabilities, how do we take them on the journey? And so, you know, even from a designer point of view, we are developing, you know, evolving new skills, you know, um, in that as well. Yeah, I think there's, there's, yeah. there's two excellent points in there. I think the first one is that, that people people's jobs, it's not about people's jobs changing in the future, it's about people's jobs changing right now, you know, that actually if you're in customer services, um, digital has uh, removed a lot of the transaction-based interactions that you would have. And what that leaves you with is it leaves you with the most difficult, the most challenging, the most stressful um, uh, uh, kind of customer interactions to deal with. Uh, and that means that the, the job is changing for people who work in a contact center in a bank like like the one here at, at Tesco Bank. Uh, it means that you are under higher stress levels um, at work and organizations need to then adapt um, around that. Um, you know, so uh, the days of measuring average handling time for, um, for calls is, uh, I think, are well and truly over because those type of transactional calls are all moving to digital to digital channels. Um, and, and rightly so, it's easier for a customer to serve themselves and um, they, they don't need the, the human being at the end. When they do need a human being is when things go wrong, when they become uncertain, when, um, there's, a, when there's a problem or, or any of these kind of things. And, and actually, that's when it's most important that the organizations that we deal with show empathy and um, and help, and, and that's a very human thing that is, I think, will be very difficult to 
automate. And and just like, I mean, in the UK, we had a trend uh, maybe five years ago of companies advertising UK-only call centers. And I think we're about to see a trend of companies advertising human-only call centers so that actually when you phone a company with a, a difficult problem, you can guarantee that you'll get through to a real person who will try and understand your problem, understand why you're upset, solve the problem, yes, but reassure you and, uh, and make it, you know, explain why it might have happened and all of those kind of things. I think Amjit's point about the role of designer changing is is absolutely um, it is absolutely right. I think um, you know from a, from being a design studio, we recognise our own role is changing. It used to be that we worked um, as very tight studio designing products or services for clients. And much more, it's that we're facilitating um, design within clients and doing an awful lot more uh, design thinking and, and, and applying design to really strategic level um, challenges. And it, it's become much more about designing with clients rather than designing for clients. And, and I think that's what the, the kind of modern human Tesco Bank partnership kind of shows that that kind of deepening relationship between a design studio like ours and yeah. a, an organization like yours i'm just yeah. and, and that extends you know beyond agency and client that mm. extends into organization so like i said you know even as a practice within the bank we're designing with you know our relevant colleagues you know to design new services new propositions you know new experiences and and that's mm. really important you know yeah, that's uh, that's great to hear. I'm sure lots of our listeners are thinking now. I I need to get one of those pop ups myself uh, for both of you. What, what would be your number one tip, Paul, from a an agency point of view, and uh, Amjit from uh, an, an in house point of view? What's your number one tip to get uh, make a successful pop up? I, I think the key thing for us when we when we help clients create pop-ups is not to think of them as as too insular a bubble. That actually, what you then, if if you're not careful, what you can create is just like where you create, um, you know, innovation labs and things like that. You know, you get this them and us mentality. Uh, if you're not careful where it's, you know, only they're allowed to do innovation, only they're allowed to do design. What you really want is, and, and if you're going to really take the whole organization on a journey, you want that do, that pop-up studio to be more like a beachhead, where actually what you're trying to do is you're trying to, yes, do the act of design in that pop-up studio, but also what you're trying to do is talk to everyone else in the organization about what it means to be doing design, to be taking in their um, to be taking in their their ideas, their thoughts, their experiences, um, but also be using the environment that you've created that pop up within to prototype, to pilot, to test things, so that people see things coming both going into the pop up and coming back out and being tested in the real world as well, and that stops it becoming an insular bubble as as perhaps. You know, organizations that have set up innovation labs in the past have, have found that these things can become. Yeah. And I think for me, um, what I would say is don't get fixated on the space mm -hmm. or the idea of a pop-up studio. Instead, become more passionate and be, become more fixated on how you're creating change and how you're you know, involving people and how you're working across boundaries because, you know, the space in itself is just a vehicle, you know, and, and you can easily spend too much time thinking about how to dress the space, what to have in the space, whereas what you really need is just a space, you know. And, and the other thing is, is you'll learn as you go through it. So we learn loads of, you know, things like even simple acts of, you know, in our space having you know we've moved to open space now but for our pop-up studio just have the door open right it just sounds really really trivial but it actually just creates that sense of connection you know um you know regularly you know go out invite people in and stuff like that and so for me it's like don't get fixated on the space that's just that's mm. just a mechanism get more passionate about what you're trying to do is, you know, really design people first services and that's the most important thing. And to do that you need people. You don't you need a space, yes, but it's not the space that makes a difference. 
It's been so successful. You've got, you've now got a permanent studio. Yeah, there, yeah, right? yeah. We should have added, I should have added that is that following that project and and just generally our commitment, you know, to human centered design, but also customer and colleague experience. We now have a dedicated studio in our service centre in Glasgow. We've got two studios in the bank, um, you know. Um, but we now have a dedicated space, you know, um, a, stu- a dedicated studio, sorry, in our service centre. Okay, so that's uh, that's still the people who were there before. Is it like, uh, and do they take on different projects now, or what? No, no. So basically, no. So basically, the studio is only constant, um, and you know our designers. But what we'll do is as we embark on new projects we bring different um, colleagues into it so you know we've done projects for in insurance you know and other spaces and so similar model you know always refining it but we will have uh you know cross-discipline team where we will bring other people you know into that process uh, because as you can imagine you know the bank's broad And so there will be subject matter experts, you know, and it really just depends on the the problem that we're solving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. So you guys won the uh, award, uh, Best in Private Sector. What does the award uh, mean to you? Um, I think for me, you know, personally, I think think the award is – and a really important recognition, you know, of um, first and foremost the work we did, but more, you know, the impact that we had, you know. Um, and so that award meant a lot, you know, as a designer to be recognized by peers, you know, and people that we respect, you know, hugely, you know, f- to recognize the work we did. Um, beyond that, I think. What's really important, and this is a bit, un- this might sound a bit unpopular, is really the most proudest thing is the impact the work is having, you know, on our colleagues, on our customers, and so the award is like an icing, you know, it's really nice. Don't get me wrong, you know, it's the icing on the cake, and we're absolutely delighted to win it and have that recognition. But you know, our driver is always how do we make things better for our customers, you know, and so that impact is more, I'm more proud of that, but I'm equally delighted that, um, you know, the bank and Tesco, you know, um, you know, and Modern Human, we've been recognized for the work that we did. Yeah, I, I, as, a, as a design studio, I, it's really nice to receive external recognition. You spend a lot of time working on projects with clients and, and you hope that after you've finished, your your client is happy and that you've made a difference to their customers and the people who use their products and services. Um, but it's often very difficult to benchmark how you are doing as a design studio against your your peers. And I think what, what the best award schemes uh, allow you to do as a design studio is, is to understand how the work you're doing relates to the work wider of an industry um at modern human we've been really um lucky to win a number of awards last year and i think what that means to us is it is it helps us to benchmark our work against um the 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 product design the service design industry and really understand um how yes we're creating happy clients but also we're creating groundbreaking work that that changes people's lives and i think that's what's important yeah i think to add to that is also um what was interesting for us was you know winning that award you know just to echo you know what we said before that recognition by our peers you know was really important but it was almost like you know, our bank, you know, we won the award collectively. So there was a really lovely halo effect where, you know, lots of, you know, while there was a dedicated team working on that piece of work, that project went and, you know, a lot of colleagues were involved in, um, you know, delivering that service, you know, which was a key theme of the conference last year as well. And so, you know, that, you know, award was you know, very much, you know, for a broader range of people rather than, you know, the product of just that core redesign team. And that halo effect has been really important, you know. 
Okay, well, that, that's great. Well, congratulations, uh, both you and the entire team, of course, who uh, who worked on it. Um, if uh, it was also really interesting to speak to you, I think it's really great to hear about this project, and I think uh, it's going to inspire many of us to uh, go about it in the same way as some of the tips you gave. Um, if people want to find out more about this project, find out more about Tesco Bank or a Modern Human, uh, where can people uh, reach out and find you? Yeah, so I mean, I, I'm delighted, you know, I, I'm always humbled that um, when people are reaching out to basically ask us about this piece of work. So, you know, I, I can be found on LinkedIn, I'm Jadrasul. I would encourage people if they are interested, want to find out more, then very happy for them to get in touch because, you know, the one thing for me is kind of broadly, we're all on the same journey from a design point of view, um, just at different points of that journey. And so, you know, if, you know, we can share our experiences, help other people and equally learn from others, you know, then I'm really, really, you know, um, keen for that to happen. So, yeah, probably the easiest is, you know, I'm on LinkedIn, you know, get in touch and, um, you know, I, I'm really happy to take it from there. And people can find out more about Modern Human at uh, either on Twitter, Mod, Mod Human, um, or they can find out on our website, uh, modernhuman.co, um, or they can, um, yeah, find me on LinkedIn, Paul Jervis Heath, and I'm always happy to have conversations about uh, all the things that we've talked about. It's uh, they're always interesting conversations to have between designers. I think. Great, that was super interesting. Thank you so much for your time and sharing all these uh, interesting insights from this project. And uh, congratulations again with your award. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank, yeah, thank you very much. A lot. We'll uh, add these links to uh, servicedesignpodcast.com. So uh, go there to find the links to uh, Amjit and Paul's LinkedIn and uh, the websites, etc. Thanks a lot, guys, and uh, see you in the future. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. The Service Design Podcast was brought to you by the Service Design Network and Night Moves. For more information, previous episodes, or to join the conversation, please visit servicedesignpodcast.com. For more information about the Service Design Network, visit service-design-network.org. And for Night Moves, visit nightmoves.be. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to this podcast. The intro and outro music is from If the Stars Grow Dim Tonight by Hydrogen C, featuring I Will, I Swear. Until next time.